Micah 3, and I said, Hear you, heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced, the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips for there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord, with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe its priests teach for a price, its prophets practice divination for money, yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be ploughed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray you'd help us to take the warning that you have given by your prophet Micah, that we may not fall prey to the same errors of Israel, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this has got to be a very unpleasant chapter of the Bible. There's almost no relief in it at all. Uh, I call it the prophetic indictment. But think first about leadership, because it's directed to the leaders. Leadership is one of those topics that uh, Christians are concerned about, the world's concerned about any number of programs on leadership. What is leadership? How you do it? What's the style of leadership? How you should conduct leadership? And we as a group of people are training to be the leaders of God's people. And so, you know, leadership seems to be something to be talked about. I think it's a nonsense myself, but there you go. In the, uh, I, I just picked off the first two paragraphs of a Wikipedia article on leadership that are there on your outline. Uh, in the US, academic environments define leadership as a process of social influence in which a person can enlist the aid and support of others in the accomplishment of common task. Others have challenged the more traditional managerial view of leadership, which believes that it is something possessed or owned by one individual due to their role or authority, and instead advocate the complex nature of leadership, which is found at all levels of the institution, both with, within formal roles. Studies of leadership have produced theories involving trades, situational interaction, function, behaviour, power, visions and values, charisma and intelligence, among others. So it goes on. One of my friends in the military described leadership as getting people to do what they don't want to. 
You know, I mean, there's, what is leadership? It just goes on and on and on. And leadership happens. It's like power. Power is given and allocated within any division of society. But what is it? Well, when they turn to the Bible, having worked out a theory of leadership from pop psychology, sociology or wherever, they find verses that back it up. But there really are no words, especially in the New Testament, that actually are the word leaders. It's not a biblical concept. Uh, there are institutional positions, kings, uh, heads of houses, and so on, but it's, it's not, there's, the concept of leadership is not actually there in the Bible. But what does the Bible have that matters here? Well, firstly, there's the community charter. So turn with me to Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 4. Because here is God, through Moses, recounting what has happened in the Exodus, so that as they go into the Promised Land, they will know how to live in the light of their charter, which was given to them at Mount Sinai in particular. And Deuteronomy 4, I think, is one of the most important passages of the Old Testament to understand the history of, of Israel and the expectations of God. Chapter 4, verse 1, And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I'm teaching you, and do them, that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord your God, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, for the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. See, I have taught you statutes and rules, as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them, in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them, do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all the statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what a great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us, whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I have set before you today. The very concept of right living and the right way of living, of righteousness, of laws, of justice and the like, comes from the word of God, who wants his people to live by his word, not by sight, but by word. And so he doesn't appear... He speaks from the mountain, they hear his voice, but they do not see his form or his shape. And so it's radically, dramatically different to every other religion of the ancient world or the Canaanites, whose gods are all about appearances. The God of Israel is all about speaking. It's about words. It's about right living and righteousness. It's about justice and truth. It's a different form of religion. It's about the words. And I spoke some Queen's birthday, a couple of Queen's birthdays ago, against the subject of idolatry. Because uh, I'm afraid modern Christians are degenerating the word idolatry because they don't see how stark the difference is between living by the word of God as opposed to living by sight. Yeah? The eyes are not how we relate to God. 
the voice of God in his words speaking to us is how we relate to God. It's a, it's a fundamental. But as they do the word of God that are given to them in the promised land, they will stand out a nation that is completely different that will actually impress all the other nations of the world by the quality of their moral, just life. So their commission, in a sense, is to... Uh, their, their charter, in a sense, is to be holy, as I am holy. Their, their charter is to stand out as a, a beacon of light in an unjust, wicked world by keeping the very law of God. Now, here, we have the rulers and... Um, the heads and the rulers. Uh, some translations have the word leaders for rulers or, or judges. Uh, judge is a good word for it in the sense that what they're being called upon to do is to judge. Um, it's, it's, not, it's not kings, that's the point. And why is it not kings? Well, because of 2 Chronicles. If you go there to 2 Chronicles, for there you'll see the king could not do all the judging that was necessary to do. Just like Moses had to appoint 70 elders in the wilderness, so the king Jehoshaphat had to appoint other judges to do the judging for him. So 2 Corinthians 19, 2 Corinthians 19, verse 4 following. Jehoshaphat lived at Jerusalem, and he went out again among the people from Beersheba to the hill country of Ephraim and brought them back to the Lord, the God of their fathers. He appointed judges in the land in all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city, and said to the judges, Consider what you do, for you judge not for man, but for the Lord. He is with you in giving judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God, or partiality, or taking bribes. The very concept of justice is found really in the scriptures, in the Judaic, uh, the Judaic Christian heritage. That's where the sense of justice and righteousness and impartiality, the blindness of Lady Justice, the, the sense of judges that are above the law in their behaviour and character, but under the law in their behaviour and character as well, because they obey the law themselves but they will not be persuaded. And so the prophets and the priests, they are also part of the leadership team of Israel, if you want to use that kind of silly language, but they are part of it, but they have different tasks. You'll notice the priest has the task of teaching in verse 11. I'm afraid because of our understanding of the epistle of the Hebrews and the way in which uh, the Lord Jesus Christ fulfills the priesthood of sacrifice, we, we tend to limit the priest's role down to the sacrificial offering, but the, the scriptures speak of the priests as the teachers of God's word. Because again, the way you relate to God is by his word, and so his priests are the ones who bring his word to his people. The prophets, they are then mentioned also uh, in, uh, in um, that verse, uh, but the practicing of divination for money it's got to do with, they, they speak, they proclaim the word. So Micah, verse 8, tells you the prophets, I'm filled with the power, with the spirit of the Lord, with justice and might, why? To declare to Jacob 
his transgressions and to Israel his sin. Because of our empowered Christianity, unempowered Christianity today, people want to have power as the miracles or things like that. But the great miracle is to be able to declare to Jacob his transgression and Israel his sin. It's to be able to, from the Spirit of God, to speak God's word. And God's word will be the word of justice and of truth. And so that's what he's empowered to do. Well, then, what's Micah's indictment? Well, it comes to all of these people, to the rulers in verses 1 to 3. <laughs> it is some of the starkest, most horrible uh, indictments that you find anywhere in the scriptures, isn't it? I mean, he describes them as being cannibals, really, for what they're doing. They're just ripping the flesh off people and eating them. I don't think you're supposed to take it physically. I don't think cannibalism had now come into Israel. But the way in which they rip off the people is as if they were cannibals in their destruction of them. And notice, they're supposed to know justice, because that's their job to implement justice. But see what they do in verse 2? Hate the good, love the evil. You can't, you can't be more opposed to justice than that. That is the ultimate reversal of everything that is just. And so they are really evil. And you look down at them at verse 9 again where it describes what they do. They, say they detest justice and they make crooked all that is straight. Uh, they build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. I mean, this is the city of God. This is the city that is to show the world the justice and righteousness and holiness of God. But it's being built out of corruption. And, it, and they give judgments for a bribe. <laughs> That's the end of any justice, isn't it? And then he has the indictment of the prophets. Because they also do things for a bribe. Uh, they prophets practice divination for money, verse 11. But that's the meaning every translation takes of verse 5 uh, and 6. It, it's, it's, a little, it's a little tricky to know how to translate it. But the meaning in all the different translations and commentaries that I looked at always comes out the same. But, that uh, when people, pray, people pay them enough, they'll give the message people want. And the message people want is peace, peace, as Jeremiah said when there is no peace. That's the message people always want us to preach. Say nice things. The, the kinds of warm, friendly, happy things. Uh, do not preach Micah 3. That's not a passage people want to be preaching. And then, because when people don't pay them enough, well, then they'll say the kinds of things that... And so... These people make up their message by how much they're being paid for which message. And once you're in that situation, of course, you're in horror. Go across to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. You'll see nothing new under the sun. Same thing happens with Christians. You see, Christian teachers, 1 Corinthians, 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, verse 5, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind, deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. 
For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into uh, many senseless harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you have been called about which... See, these are false teachers. If we look back earlier in chapter 6, verse, uh, um, what that, verse number 2 and 3, you see, it's about teaching and teachers and their love of money. Well, it is interesting in uh, 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1, when we're talking about the qualifications for eldership, one of the things that would disqualify them is love of money. And it is still the case. Uh, I think there's a great blessing in being an Australian for lots of reasons. Uh, the hatred of the tall poppy is one of them. Uh, the standardisation in some of our old denominations, such as uh, Anglicans, Presbyterians, uh, and the um, acceptance of our uh, parachurch ministries like uh, Scripture Union or AFES of those denominational st standards means that clergy salaries are set uh, and fixed with a stipend. But when I go to America, you are paid bonuses if your church increases in numbers of people. You're paid bonuses for congregational. I mean, it's not everywhere in every American church, but because the free enterprise structure of thinking so dominates their culture that you get and so the bigger the church the more money you get paid and I was at a clergy conference once there I was speaking and there were men there struggling to keep their families alive because they were in small churches and there were men earning six figures salaries and when I pointed out this disparity um, I was told by my host to change the subject, we might going to talk about that here, and I th it was a little, little stark, but I did as I was invited, and so I changed the subject, and the poor men came to me afterwards and told me how much that man earned each year, and that's why he didn't want this subject to be discussed any further, because they saw through him completely. I didn't, I didn't realise just how much of a disparity there was between the poor and the rich, and they write books in order to make money in America, you know, and they, they seek out contracts for... And so what, what, once the motivation for me writing my book is to make money, uh, what am I going to write? <laughs> How much will I allow the truth to be compromised? You see, Australian culture doesn't let us do that at the moment, but it's only at the moment, right? And so... But there's the problem of the prophets and the priests and the leaders. You see, money, 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 it, it robs things. And so the leaders in verses 9 to 11 and the rest. Well, then you get Micah's warning. The warning to them in verse 4, it's a, I think the ESV does a good thing just putting a little paragraph break there because it, it's a little confusing who the they are in the text. But... While it may be confusing, everyone agrees. 
it's the leaders again that are being spoken of, but they're being spoken of in the third person now rather than the second person. Uh, that their day will come when they are in need and they didn't listen to the needs of poor people, well God's not going to listen to them in their hour of need either. And so he will hide his face, he will not listen to them because their deeds were evil. And God will not answer, verses 5 to 7, uh, it's the end of verse 7, there's no answer from God. See, the prophets want to be able to speak the word of God, but they don't want to speak the word of God. Well, when the time comes, they won't have the word of God to speak, because God's not going to speak through these people. Right? And likewise, what's going to happen to those who want to build Zion with blood? Well, Zion, verse 13, will be ploughed as a field and Jerusalem become a heap of ruins and, and the, the temple, you know, it'll just be a wooded height. There won't be anything there. You'll notice through all this, there's a certain hypocrisy uh, of religion. You see, the, the, the leaders will call to the Lord when they need him. And the prophets will speak in the name of the Lord, but they're not really. And those who build up Zion, the leaders and all of them, you say, they say, well, we're safe because we've got the Lord in the midst, so we don't have to worry about things. But you, you, can't, you can't have God as a, a kind of a safety token, to, you know, a, a lucky charm who's going to have it protect you. You must do that, which is the word of God. Well, it's a passage which uh, illustrates all kinds of things and there are any number of implications we can draw from it. It really tells us and illustrates so strongly the justice of God. Um, it is the contrast to Israel's charter. They're set up to demonstrate by their living righteously how close God is to them and uh, how just and fair are God's laws. But nothing could be much further away from that charter than the leaders feeding themselves on the poor people that they're supposed to lead. Uh, notice there's an underlying, uh, hu underlying human judgments are always God's judgments. See, these, these judges are there making judgments and they think their judgments matter. But actually, it's God's judgments who matter. They're the ones that really matter. And I'm going to give you an article in a while from Henry Ergas, who's uh, written on the subject of law and justice in the light of the accusations against the Attorney General about rape. Um, and he gives the history of uh, our legal system and why we have statutes of limitation that built into the legal system and how it's very important to have them. But in it, Henry Augustus, I, I never can work out where he's coming from. I think it's Roman Catholicism, but it could be Judaism or it could be nothing. He's just an interesting man, is Henry Augustus. Uh, he tells of this, the restrictions, time limits imposed on human justice were no doubt easier to accept in an age universally convinced that a far higher justice than that which could be secured in this life awaited both guilty and innocent in the next life.
and which was also convinced that there was there was sin there could in time be remorse and redemption at the moment we've got rid of remorse and redemption and forgiveness it's cancelled and we don't have a sense that well ultimately human justice will fail but you cannot get away from god's justice i don't know if the attorney general is innocent or guilty got no idea how can anybody know? The only two people in the room at the time, one's dead and he says he didn't do it. The assumption of innocence is the assumption of innocence. You've got to take it as that. But he could have done it, couldn't he? He will get away from it. He will get out of it in, in every court of the land because there's just in the human courts an impossibility of ever finding him guilty of this crime. But you wouldn't want to be in his shoes when he faces God if he was guilty. That would be really bad. See, that understanding of there is a... But we've done away with God. We've done away with God's justice. We've done away with God's judgment. We've done away with atonement. We've done away with forgiveness. And we are corrupting the whole system of justice that is built on Judaic Christian thinking. Here is God's justice loud and clear. Even when there's unjust judges, do not worry. God will bring justice in the long run. And sometimes that's the only justice you will get in this world. And so you've got to get to learn to live with it. You'll notice throughout it, the justice is retributive. The punishment fits the crime. We just take this for granted, friends. We just take it for granted. But that's, that's not the cultures of most of the world, the idea that punishment fits the crime. But this is classic illustration of it, you see. And notice it's communal. Here's the danger of leaders. Leaders lead the whole society into sin and the whole society will be destroyed by the sin. And so our concern for getting leaders who are righteous people leading our government is a right thing for us to be concerned about because self-protection, if nothing else, it's important that we have. Notice how this God is slow to anger. See, he's giving warning of the judgment that's coming. Surely they've done enough for him to already wipe them out. But he doesn't. He keeps warning because God is slow to justice. Of course, quick justice rarely brings true justice. There's a whole set of things that are illustrated here. It's not what the passage is about. They're inferences you can draw from it. They're implications that flow from it. But they're... The passage is warning people of the wrong they're doing and that you cannot escape. Be sure your sins will find you out. You cannot escape from the hand of God who is going to bring this. It, it tells you of the commercialization of the, it tells you of the nature of sin. It illustrates, doesn't it, how sinful sin can be and the terrible warning against the commercialization of relationships which is just normal Western civilization. Uh, our sporting processes have been gutted by money. Our political processes are gutted by money. Our religious processes can be gutted by money. The love of money, foundation of all manner of evil, which is the 1 Timothy 6.10. This is a great illustration of it. Priests, prophets, rulers, leaders, that should be a warning to us who are exercising any Christian leadership, especially one that is close to prophetic. Love of money, 
disqualifies it. Free yourself from the love of money. Tells you the hypocrisy of, of and futility of religious observances. <laughs> you can't have better religious observances to be the temple of Israel, temple of Israel in Jerusalem. But it was completely wrong and didn't provide. And it tells you the nature of leadership. Strangely, because you see, I don't think the Bible teaches leadership. I think the Bible teaches that we must take responsibility to promote justice. And so Romans 13, God's appointment of governments is to exercise judgment. So that instead of having um, vigilantes, instead of having vendettas, we have a government over us appointed by God to bring justice, to punish evildoers and reward good people. And so the nature of Christian leadership is taking responsibility to do that which is right wherever you are. And so uh, I lead this team. That's because you are all on my heart as a burden for me to look after you. That is my leadership. It's weird, isn't it? But that's Christian leadership. Right? My concern for your welfare. It's the, it's the exact reverse that the world ever thinks of. Um, and it doesn't sound like leadership at all. Uh, it's got nothing to do with getting you to do what you don't want to do or something like that. That's, that's, the, that's the way the world leads, but it's not the way God's people are to lead. It's, it's, leadership is taking responsibility. Very different thing.